Hello and welcome to this edition of Criminal Justice Matters with me, Ed Johnston. Uh, today we're joined by Kathleen Zellner, who is Stephen Avery's uh, counsel and representation in terms of his pursuit for justice regarding his wrongful conviction involving uh, Theresa Halbuck. Um, we cover a lot of stuff concerning the Avery case, criminal justice in general, as well as Kathleen's uh, journey into criminal law and focusing on wrongful convictions. I hope you enjoy the show. And if you have any questions, uh, please feel free to get in touch through social media or uh, or email. I'll put all the details at the end of this show. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, Kathleen. Thank you very much for joining us today. Um, there's been a lot of anticipation um, on social media about this interview. Um, so I do have some questions to uh, get into. Um, if you're happy to start, we will start. Yes. Wonderful. Um, how did you get into cr criminal law? It started when um, I got into criminal law. Uh, my first introduction was when I clerked for an appellate judge. And so he had a combination of criminal and civil cases. But the two years that I was with him, we had some very big and complex criminal cases. And I found the constitutional issues really interesting. So that was my first introduction. And is that something that's just sort of stayed with you forever after that introduction? Yes, because I've um, been fortunate in that I've been able to combine a civil and a criminal law practice. So I worked for an attorney that had done the same thing that had primarily criminal cases, but some civil cases. And then I was trained at a large Chicago law firm in professional malpractice. So uh, I was defending doctors and lawyers from malpractice suits. And then I ended up going back into my current practice, starting my own law firm. I see. And has the um, one of our one of our uh, someone from social media has asked, Wolf Ryan has asked, has the allure of working in wrongful convictions, was that always there? Was that always the plan? Uh, no, because actually when I started, there were no such thing as wrongful convictions. The first um, wrongful conviction case in Illinois was about 1990, I wasn't involved in that, and I started my firm in 1990. So, no, that that area of law has developed uh, after I started my firm. I see. Um, and just we have a lot of students that that, that watch these sort of vlogs. Um, what would be your best piece of advice you could give to a student who was looking to pursue a career in in, in criminal defense? Well, I think my general advice to all students starting the practice of law is you must have experience in a number of different areas of law to understand what you want to do. The great thing about working for a judge after law school where you're actually writing the opinions is you're exposed to a wide variety of cases. So everything from security law to medical malpractice um, to criminal law. And that's that, but I firmly believe you know, part of the reason I've been successful is I've been on both sides of the table. I've worked as a criminal defense attorney. I was never a prosecutor, but I was a civil defense attorney uh, before I became a plaintiff, which is more analogous to being a prosecutor. So the key thing 
you can never evolve into a really well-rounded attorney if you do not have that background. I also had the background of doing trials and appellate work. So most people, when they get out, or many attorneys, I think, make the mistake of just getting in a niche area, and they never fully develop a perspective um, on all the common areas between these different specialized practices. Thank you. Um, if we could move on to the sort of Stephen Avery case in the Netflix um, make, Making a Murderer uh, documentary, um, how is Stephen doing right now? Stephen is doing well, all things considered. Um, I think he's, I think the weight and, you know, just everything that he's been through, that it's very wearing on him. But he's a remarkably resilient person. Uh, you know, for example, eight or nine months ago, he got the COVID virus and he recovered right. from that. He's very mentally tough. In fact, we did some testing of him, post-traumatic uh, testing of him, and found that he is one of those people that gets stronger as a result of trauma. That's, that's excellent to hear. Um, how does he, I, I, this is a question for me, how does he simply keep going? Um, with everything that he's experienced in his life in the criminal justice system? I mean, I've asked him the same question, <laughs> like, how how does he persevere? Um, I th it, there's a couple components to it. One is his connection with his parents, because he believes that he has um, his strongest desire and goal is to get out and take care of his parents. So that keeps him going. The second thing is because he's innocent, um, he does not want to succumb to giving up or in any way conceding um, anything that would indicate that he was guilty. And so that's really what sustains him. But he's in a rare category. I mean, there's very few people, if any, that have been convicted twice, wrongly mm. convicted twice. So there isn't anyone he can consult with. Um, I try to have, you know, weekly contact with him, but uh, and, he, and the other th thing that I notice about his personality is his sense of humor. That's the other thing that seems to sustain him. So he enjoys just kidding around and, um, you know, talking about how ludicrous a lot of times the judicial system is, that it makes no sense to someone, just a common man, it makes no sense to them. No. Um, in terms, as a follow-up to that one, in terms of, his parents and drawing strength from his parents. How are his parents coping? Well, neither of his parents enjoy particularly good health. They both declined significantly, you know, from the airing of the first season to now. Um, so, you know, his mother's been in and out of the hospital and, and his father's got some health problems, but seems to be pretty self-sufficient. Um, you know, they're aging. It's kind of touch and go, you know, with both of them, mm. but I believe they have persevered in the, you know, that he keeps them alive, uh, the hope that he'll be freed. Yeah. Um, in terms of the, the Netflix show or, or the documentary, how was it, how did you find being followed by the film crew when obviously you've got a very complex and difficult job and having a film crew present? Well, you know, I had agreed to do that. So I gave them, I really allowed them to have a window into the process. And with that came, an, you know, a risk 
of, you know, just flubbing it or, or, you know, in some way uh, inadvertently discovering or uncovering incriminating evidence. But fortunately, this case came along at a point in my career where I have had so much experience with innocent people and the struggle that you go through that I knew that none of those things would happen because he was innocent. I knew that no matter how many tests I did and what I subjected him to or the forensic evidence, there was nothing that would backfire. There was nothing that would show uh, that I was wrong about his innocence. And in terms of when this came along in the sort of point of your career that you're at, can you tell us a little bit maybe about your most memorable case you've had in terms of miscarriages of justice? Yes. In fact, I was just filming this week with um, 2020 ABC on a case that I had in 2004, uh, the Kevin Fox case. And that was, you know, reliving that this week, I realized what a traumatic uh, but exhilarating experience that was because um, Kevin Fox had a three-year-old daughter that was kidnapped, sexually assaulted, and murdered, and he gave a confession to all of the above. Wow. And so it was, uh, and he was charged with the death penalty. The case occurred during an election year when the state's attorney was running for re-election. Fortunately, he lost, um, and we were able to, and it was just such a long shot that there would be any DNA. Uh, there was saliva in the child's vagina, despite the fact he'd been drowned in a creek. And so we were able to get a YSTR profile, get him released. That was the beginning of the battle as we worked our way through federal court, through the civil part of the case. And this is what I'm talking about, of combining you know, criminal and civil and having uh, the experience to be able to walk into a civil courtroom and present a criminal case uh, that's been botched. And so that struggle took place from 2004 until 2010. And we were, uh, it was before, you know, people were scanning documents and all of that. And so we went over and retrieved 50 boxes um, from the case, 50 banker boxes. And we were reviewing those for the film crew <clears throat> and the, you know, of course, the parents and the horror of the whole case just comes back. And you remember what that was like. And the feeling at certain points that it was impossible to win it. Yeah. And so so did, did Kevin Fox serve six, did six years in prison from 04 to 2010 for something no, he did actually, do? was released, <clears throat> excuse me, he was released much earlier on the DNA, but people believed, still believed that he committed the murder and he had confessed to it. And so the civil rights trial was an arduous task. Um, but amazingly, even though we had a partial YSTR profile, by the intense focus on the case after the civil rights, and it was the biggest civil rights verdict in the United States, for the amount of time he was in prison, they caught the real killer. They were able to get a confession and link the DNA to the real killer. So the case was the trifecta of wrongful yeah. because we got, you know, the person wrongly accused and charged 
out of prison. We won a huge civil rights verdict and we were able to expose the wrongdoing. And then, you know, the most important thing is the real killer was caught, confessed and got life in prison. And yet when I was reviewing those boxes, I could feel the weight of the whole case again, the times where I thought this is just not possible. You know, this we're not going to get the DNA. The child was in water. Um, it's a hopeless task, mm-hmm. even though he's innocent. And is that trifecta rare in your experience? Yes, yes. Yeah. About, we've been fortunate. About half of our case, the evidence we've developed has led to the apprehension and prosecution of the real killers, um, which I have to say, it always feels incomplete even when the innocent person gets out of prison, um, it always feels incomplete. And so um, that's been a very motivating factor in the work that I've done is to get the real person held accountable. Yeah, and that, that sounds like a really good hit rate, that sort of half, uh, half the time. Um, um, another question sort of linked on to how this would impact your sort of personal life I've had from students is, how do you park this at the end of the day? If you, you have a case like Kevin Fox or Stephen Avery, how do you eat dinner and enjoy a glass of wine and watch television? Right. You do have to learn to compartmentalize. But I've realized, and it's been in retrospect that I've realized it does take a toll on you being exposed to so much tragedy, you know, uh, such high stakes in these cases. Um, and yet I think I've, I think I've grown stronger with it, but you have to make a, a concerted effort in your personal life, not to have it dominate everything you're doing. I know my daughter would think when I worked on Kevin Fox, it was like, she felt like she'd lost her mother that I just wasn't, mm-hmm. I got better with that as time went on. But I, I think it's a cautionary tale about, you know, part of what makes you effective as an attorney makes you win and all of that is it becomes all consuming. Yeah. But there, there's a price that you pay for that. Um, so you do want to have that balance in your life. Yeah. And in terms of trying to strike this balance, uh, we, we, when you're dealing with cases like the Fox case or the Avery case, are you talking 12 hour days, 14 hour days? It just all, it, it's almost like you can't even separate it into hours. You are thinking about it every other minute so even even if you're not sitting you know preparing the document or reviewing something it stays present with you so you'll be in a situation where you'll see a child or you'll you know you'll see a family so you're you're coping and what i've realized because i'm working a lot with forensic psychologists is they now know that post-traumatic stress if you're a witness to someone's stress that it's infectious. Um, And so I do feel in some of those cases, particularly the one with uh, the the child, Riley Fox, that we all that worked on, everyone had post-traumatic stress from working on that. Um, And I realized that when we were filming this week, that show's gonna air at the end of April, but it's a good microcosm for somebody to look at uh, that would consider this type of work and the, yes. journey, the journey that you go on with with the families, because you become a family member to them and they're, 
you're their lifeline, you know? Yeah. And in terms of sort of televising these cases in the and these journeys, do you think there's any um, any sort of net benefit uh, to the to, to the wider public who may not have an interest in criminal justice? I do because I think it's like a Shakespearean tale. It's a tale of life because everyone's life has components of you know great joy and then great sadness. It's it's. You know, and death is an inevitable factor in everyone's life. So I do think, um, and, and it's interesting with this program that's coming out on 2020, the mother was the one who really wanted the story retold in its entirety. Um, because I think people that are wrongfully convicted and their families never feel fully exonerated in the public eye. And the message um, that she articulated that I thought was so um, important and such a teachable uh, kind of concept is she was saying if she had to advise or make a statement about the case, it would be to tell people, don't judge things you don't understand. You haven't been in the shoes of a parent that's lost their child you know, to understand why someone would, a father would confess to it. Don't be so mm -hmm. quick to judge people because their lives are turned upside down. And you can think on social media, you know, I mean, I've done the same thing myself. You can think that you understand and all that, but, but you're not really totally evaluating all of the evidence. And you have no understanding of the emotions that are going on with people. And in terms of Riley Fox's mother, this isn't a case that I'm I'm familiar with. Did she support um, Kevin Fox through this? Or yes, it was yeah. amazing. She never wavered, and it was a huge factor. I mean, the DNA cleared him on the criminal case, but it was an enormous factor in the public perception, but most importantly in the civil rights trial because they did not stay married; they divorced. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't because she doubted him. She was she was the strongest advocate wow. that he was such a great father and that there's no possible way he could have ever hurt the child. And so, you know, I say some I, I have a group of plaintiffs I've represented that I say, tell my new law clerks they rise to the level of being heroic. Um, yep. and she's one of those people. Wow, that that's that, that's fascinating, and uh, I must admit, I'm kind of taken aback by by that support as well from the sort of nutshell yes. case. In, in terms of of Stephen's case, is there uh, a time frame or what are the next steps in in terms of Stephen? So the situation that we're in, we're in the state court system, not the federal. But interestingly, we have a much better chance with the state court than the federal because of the federal statute, the statute that makes it so impossible to win in federal court. So wrongful convictions are most likely to, you know, be uncovered and uh, the courts are most likely to reverse and release people in the state court system. So we are, we have taken every, all the work we've done is now pending uh, before the appellate court. That appeal is now pending and we have to see what they will do. The, the area, the weakness of where we stand now is procedurally because our system in this country is set up 
to really discourage and prevent uh, retrials or reexaminations of cases. And uh, procedurally, you could make a strong argument that before I ever got in the case, that he was procedurally barred. And mm -hmm. it's a question of whether the appellate court will take a very open view of the new evidence and, and will be troubled enough uh, by all of the errors that were made and the lack of experts that the defense had that they will reopen the case or yeah. will they just shut it down procedurally. Because you could make a valid argument that, you know, procedurally we're dead in the water. Yeah. Um, in your experience, have you had similar cases where the court have said, well, yeah, we need to see more expert evidence that perhaps should have been called in, in the first trial? Yes, absolutely. I mean, that yeah. I think that's the way we've won most of our post-convictions. We just got a reversal this week on a murder case. And yes, um, most often the courts are comfortable with new forensic evidence. That's what they feel is, you know, then they're not having to go into, you know, attorney malfeasance and all of that. It's an easy, it's an easy path for the court to take. But even, even with that, even when people are requesting new DNA testing, there are courts in the United States that have shut that down procedurally. So there's just, there's our Supreme Court, uh, kind of the conservative branch of it has just taken that really hard-nosed, it's kind mm -hmm. of the Scalia approach that you know, once it's done, it's done uh, with yeah. the jury trial. And it, it, in terms of doing things differently in the original trial, if you were Stephen's defense counsel in the original trial, can, can you tell us what you might have done differently? Yes, there were several, um, and they've been very open, honest, and cooperative with me, mm. the trial attorneys, about admitting, uh, you know, that they kind of fell below uh, the standard, um, the biggest, the two areas. One is um, they did not have the right experts and they didn't have enough experts. Um, they, they pinned all their hopes on the EDTA uh, tube and we were able to do very sophisticated testing that didn't exist back then, but to show that's a dead end. The blood did not come from those tubes. But they had, you know, just failed to get a number of experts, DNA experts, um, testing different items, you know, because there was so much evidence that was planted. Um, yeah. But the, the second huge mistake was in their investigation. They had one investigator, I think a competent fellow, but they just absolutely dropped the ball on Stephen's nephew, Bobby Dassey. He was the star witness in the case. His brother absolutely contradicted and and really, you know, demonstrated that he was lying in his police statements. So we've had cases, um, certainly in the United States, where the star witness is the killer. And right. okay. so they needed to take a hard look at why he felt it felt it was imperative for him to come up with this whole story. Um, yeah. And where was he and what was his alibi and what was going on in his life? And it was just a huge error because 
he um, was contradicted by his brother and they missed that the brother had said no. He told me that she had left the property and that was everything. That was the whole yeah. case. So yeah, they, um, they did well in the courtroom. They were entertaining and all of that, but they lost. Yeah. And I always tell people, cause you know, we've lost cases that that's the reality. Like we've got two cases now for retrial that other firms or lawyers handled. Um, it's nothing personal, but if you no. lost, whatever you came up with didn't work, but there, so we lay out more than we ever have in a brief, what we think their negligence, the trial attorney's negligence was. And, and I think they've been forthcoming that they just flat out missed stuff. Yeah. And yeah. in, in, in terms of the planted evidence is one of the key parts there, the, the key to the motor vehicle that was found days later in yes. on the property. Yeah. Here's what's fascinating. I think about the case and it took, you know, I mean, we, we just spent two years on it before we ended up almost three with the appellate court. So we just spent an enormous amount of time going over things. But what I came to realize was that evidence had been planted by the killer and evidence then was planted by the police. So once the police believed that Stephen Avery had committed the murder, they were able to justify planting the key, putting the DNA on, on the hood latch. Um, those items of evidence were planted by the police, but the blood of Stephen Avery in the vehicle was planted by the killer. Okay. Not by the police. Right. And in terms of, so that, that would be blood that were, would that be connected to the blood from the, that won't be connected to the blood from the tube? No, it is not. No. We know no. the age, we were able to do testing and establish that the blood in the tube corresponded 100% was Stephen Avery's age. They told me with the DNA methylation, it was the blood of a man approximately 43 years old. It was not right. the blood of somebody in their 30s um, or late 20s. So no, and then everything had been misinterpreted with the tube and all that once I started talking to experts because I thought I could jump in the case and get an EDTA expert. But as soon yeah. as I talked to those experts, and then when I was very fortunate to get the DNA methylation done, that was absolutely a dead end and not where the blood, the blood came from Stephen Avery's cut finger was dripped into his sink. He made statements in the very beginning of the case that that blood had been removed before the police started their in right. investigation. So you knew it was a family member. And you know, someone with very close connections. Very close. And and the other thing you knew was it was not the police because the police would not go into his trailer, see blood in his sink and think, oh, I'm just going to remove it because it could have been the blood of Teresa Halbach and they wouldn't have known that. The mm -hmm. only person that knew that was the blood of Stephen Avery was the killer because yeah. he knew Teresa Halbach was never in the trailer. Yeah. And that was the key to it. So when when we pieced that part of it, when we could rule out the EDTA tube and focus on the blood in the sink, and then Stephen in his audio interviews 
back in 05 is talking about the blood in the sink. So it wasn't a recent fabrication. He has said from the beginning mm -hmm. that blood was removed. And of course, the blood in the car, it was just tiny drips of blood. Yeah. That, so what happens in these cases, and there have been other examples, once the police believe, oh my God, he did do it, that is his blood, it's okay then in their minds to plant the key, all of that. But the killer also planted the bones. Yeah. The bones were tipped in from the Dassey burn barrel into Avery's burn pit. Yeah. So. Uh, and is there, was there tests that, can, that, that sort of had proven that the bones were yes. tipped in? Yeah. Yeah. We got, I think, the leading forensic bone expert, fire expert in the world, John DeHaan, and he scientifically demonstrated that no human body could have been, nor was it, burned in Avery's burn, or in his burn pit, because of the heat that would have been required. Mm. It was open yeah. air, the condition of the bones, and then he was able to very effectively, you know, point to the bones in the Dassey burn barrel and, and demonstrate they had been tipped in from that burn barrel. They'd come from that. So the origin of where the body was and where it was burned was in the Dassey burn barrel and the bones were then tipped into Avery's and dumped into the quarry. Okay, thank you. Um, one question we've had from social media is, did you ever get the original RAV for testing the, the, the car? That's part of what's in dispute on, uh, on the appeal. The RAV is in the possession of um, it's Detective um, Weigert, um, where he's currently the sheriff. The RAV is in, it's buried underground um, in a cage. Uh, they have a special container that they put it in. And I'd been in the case 24 hours when I called to confirm that the RAV was still intact, that it would be preserved. Um, and we had an agreement with the prosecutors because they believed that new, that new testing should be done of the rev and then the judge kind of really pulled the rug out from under us despite mm -hmm. the fact both sides had agreed to that so the car exists we can test it we, we, we're going to bring a group of experts for both sides in and retest everything we could okay and is that going to happen do you think in in 2021 or is that later than as the soon line? as we get i believe what will happen is we will get uh, the court will allow an evidentiary hearing and they will allow the additional testing. Um, if they don't, we're just going to keep refiling petitions at the lower court level um, because there are just so many errors in the case. Yeah. Um, it's an endurance I, contest. You know, yeah. this, this, this kind of work is not for somebody that wants a quick fix and, mm. you know, has very little patience. You the key for the client and the key for the attorney is that you are incredibly tenacious and you persevere. And I think because we've won cases where nobody thought we had a prayer, um, it, 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 it teaches you the confidence to know you're right and you will win. I mean, I tell people the first uh, five, whoops, uh, I, I think I, I lost you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, the, the, cases that we've had where nobody thought we could win and we've won and so you get where you really trust your own judgment yeah and, and that and that's what you feel with the with the avery case you have that confidence I, there 
I, I'm absolutely 100% sure that he's innocent. I'm 100% sure I know who the killer is and exactly how this happened. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know? Yeah. Um, I, I won't push you on that on that one any further. Although I'm, I'm dying to, absolutely dying to. Um, so if and when Stephen is eventually released, do you think the officers involved in, and maybe Ken Kratz, Lenk, Colborne, do you think they will be held to any form of account? Well, I know that we would bring a civil rights case. So we would start there just like we have on these other cases. I believe that we will prevail on that. Things are evolving in this country. I mean, so far, only one prosecutor became a judge has been, you know, sent to jail, uh, not for a very long period of time. But you can see now police officers on these shooting cases being charged with homicide. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do think until we get to that point, we get rid of immunity, qualified and absolute immunity for, you know, prosecutors have absolute immunity and it's only if they're in the investigation do they lose the cloak of absolute immunity? Police officers have qualified immunity, but our US Supreme Court is seriously, even the conservative wing, contemplating getting rid of those doctrines, and they should. Yes, absolutely. They should. Um, one of the things that shocked me when watching the documentary was either the daily press conferences from from the pr prosecution in particular. And I've spoken to Jerry and Dean about this, and they, they tell me that it's absolutely not the norm. Um, yes. How, how, how could that not impinge Stephen's fair trial rights? Yes, because, I mean, the most egregious, just shocking thing and what violates all the professional conduct codes is that Mr. Kratz gave a press conference on Brendan Dassey's confession. Mm -hmm. I mean, that yeah. was just so over the top, outrageous, just so, you know, unfair. And it, I thought that was, that was one of the most extraordinary things I've ever seen. And, and ethics professors, I mean, we have affidavits in the post-conviction petition from law professors that teach ethics, that that was just a complete violation of his right to a fair trial. They should yeah. have moved the case out of that area, you know? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I mean, I, I when, watching the when watching the case and not or watching the documentary, not knowing anything about the case in advance, um, yeah, I, I, I was shocked by that. I do have quite a technical question from Carla Black from Twitter. And she says, I would like to ask Ms. Zellner if items A, M and A, N are still available for testing and if you are in interested in testing them am is a stained rock and an was possible tissue the crime lab states that both were not of human origin however both originate from the piles in the quarry areas that were hit on by the cadaver dogs i think in the world of testing um there's so many things that show that demonstrate absolutely that human bones are in the quarry when you're thinking about testing, you don't just randomly test every item. You look at, would this advance the case? I think that we've conclusively shown human bones were in the quarry. Would I rule out testing those items? No. Um, if we got the green light to retest, I would test everything that I could. Do I think that those items would definitively advance Stephen's case? I do not, okay? 
Um, yeah. We know that hall box bones, um, you know, uh, human bones are over in the quarry. Um, but I wouldn't, I just say in my list of items that I think are crucial, I would put that in the a second uh, category. I mean, helpful, but, you know, not huge. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, Louise Ebuck asks, um, following the reward that was on offer for information, was there any sort of credible leads that, that, that came out of that? Yeah, there have been. Um, and what I found, and, and going back to this Kevin Fox case, which I mentioned, the reward offer by the family led to the apprehension of the real killer because mm -hmm. the ex-girlfriend came forward uh, to the FBI um, you know, and, and did collect the reward money. But that was the reason that we, and it, it was done. I've seen it happen in two of our cases, um, where it has led because someone else knows, okay, there's the killer and then yeah. there's the person that they've trusted. And a lot of times those relationships break down in our case, or it wasn't our case, but the, it's called the Brown chicken case where seven people were murdered at a Brown's chicken. Years later, 13 years later, the two ex-girlfriends came forward because uh, they had DNA, but running it through CODIS, there was no link. So the reward caused them to come forward. So you have to be very patient. It's just like fishing. You yeah. just leave the lure out in the water and yeah. you work on other stuff. And then all of a sudden somebody comes in. And in the Rossetti 4 case, it was the brother of one of the killers. But he came forward. He had known the whole time, you know, and sometimes you think, why, why should they get the reward money? But it works. And so, yeah. yes, we have gotten we have gotten tips. So so in terms of this sort of fishing analogy, it's just it's just waiting for someone's conscience to click. Yes. And, yeah. you know, having seen people wait 13 years, people yeah. wait 15 years, but eventually, um, I think the if if the killer and the and the killers almost always confided in someone, in in the Fox case, he didn't tell the girlfriend he'd done it, but he made comments about the mm -hmm. case that made her believe not only did he have no empathy for the family, but there was an arrogance about it. He never right. confessed, but it was enough to get the FBI to him, and then yeah. with the DNA, that you know that led to his confession. Okay. Yeah, so hopefully, fingers crossed in that this yeah. someone will take the bait. Um, in in term, we, we've spoken a little bit about the scientific tests you're running and uh, and everything else. But are there any new tests that didn't exist in in '05 that that, you, that you're running now? Well, I mean, I think state of the art was you know the the um, methylation trying to sort out the issue about the blood but dna like we delivered dna samples this week on another case the just the evolution of the dna testing has allowed them with things that samples that would have been viewed as contaminated to get results so we're you know we're in that world of being able to benefit i think from the evolution on dna um and I think, you know, we did do a huge amount of testing. Um, I think the most fascinating uh, piece of evidence is the hood latch swab, because I'm convinced that they never swabbed the hood latch 
they substituted, they took a groin swab, DNA swab from Stephen Avery. So they take him to the hospital and they've charged him on a weapons charge. Why would you be taking DNA from someone and swabbing their stomach and groin area? They were trying to collect his DNA and they did and they had the swab and then we see that there's monkey business that the officer who drove the swab and turned it in was not the officer who had allegedly swabbed the rap. And that, to me, that's just such a huge piece of evidence Yeah. because they needed, they were not confident about the blood in the car because it's so obviously planted the smear yeah. by the key. And so they needed that other piece and the prosecutor needed that and he was in on it because he kept talking right. about the hood latch swab. Yeah. He needed another piece of DNA evidence. Why would Stephen's DNA be on the hood latch? That story is so contrived. It's so yeah. obviously fabricated. Um, there's no, it's not, and we tested to see if it was blood and it wasn't. It's skin cell DNA. It came off the groin swab. Okay. So, yeah. You know? It sounds odd, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, Joe Doherty asks, um, do you think that any successful appeal for Stephen would have an impact on Brendan's case as well? I do. Um, yeah, I think, you know, Northwestern, they mm. were, you know, their focus was on the confession. And unfortunately, when they got into federal court, the U.S. Supreme Court has just done nothing about juvenile confessions for years and because of the EDPA statute. But, but I believe with the investigation that we've done, if this appellate court believes that they've got the wrong killer and it's kind of obvious who the real killer is, just their sense of justice, they would want to undo this conviction and that would lead to Brendan getting yeah. relief also. I think it's difficult for Brendan now to make any kind of move because he's his processes years ahead of where we are. We're where Brendan was 10 years ago in state court. Stephen has a huge possibilities, not only within the state court, if more evidence develops, if there's a confession or tip from someone else, but he's never gone into the federal system, you know? So we're years behind them. We're years ahead of them in terms of the forensic developments, but we're years behind in terms of having so many more opportunities than what Brendan has now. Yeah. So whatever happens next, that's not going to be the last opportunity for Stephen. No way. No, we're no. just, yeah, we're, the way we do this is I don't care how many petitions we have to file. I don't care about the procedural hurdles. The only way that he's ever going to get out is if the effort continues. So even on Ryan Ferguson's case, when we did the evidentiary hearing, the only witnesses in the case, the only two witnesses against him took the stand, admitted they committed perjury, which would bring a life sentence in Missouri. The judge still ruled against us. We walked, as soon as we got the ruling, it didn't, I, I went back in my office and started drafting the appeal and mm -hmm. we won and he walked. So that's yeah. what I'm saying about persistence. It, yes, it matters what the appellate court does. We hope they go our way but it in no way will deter us. Thank you. Um, just a, two more questions before we, we finish up. Sure. In your opinion, um, what's the biggest problem facing the criminal justice system in the United States? 
The biggest problem is that we have an old antiquated system with tons of procedural uh, rules that block an innocent man from getting relief. And those rules have been completely surpassed and are outdated because of the forensic developments of DNA. Um, because no one believed if someone was convicted, you know, it was so rare for cases to get overturned. If they were overturned, it was on some procedural defect. You go back to the retry and they, they'd be convicted again. Nobody believed somebody could be innocent. They thought our, case, our system was so fair. And so we mm -hmm. constructed these rules. It's just like the EDPA rule in federal court. And they're just out of sync and a terrible impediment for an innocent person. Yeah. You know, that's what's wrong. They need to overhaul the immunity stuff. They need to face the reality. There are a significant number of innocent people in prison uh, that have been blocked and prevented from gaining freedom because of our outdated, antiquated system. And judges need to educate themselves, the trial judges. Um, you know, we're working on a case now for a retrial, fortunately a different judge, but it's just astounding the evidence, the ridiculous evidence that was let in to get a conviction. And then it got to the Supreme Court of Illinois and they reversed it. But it takes years for somebody to to work through the system and, and it shouldn't be like that. No, no. Okay, I do have to, one one final question before my sure. actual last question. Uh, do you know if there's gonna be a third season of the documentary? I don't know because I mean, it would be up to the filmmakers and I, probably what public demand was. I mean, I could see it going, you know, either way. Um, I, I don't know. I just keep my head down and keep working. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't know. Okay, thank you. And my, my final, final question, what would be the take home message uh, to the masses of Stephen supporters across the globe from this sort of chat? The, the message is that Stephen Avery is innocent and if we have a fair and just legal system, he will be exonerated um, and that they should never give up. Um, and we have to persist and hopefully we will break new ground. I mean, already the case has caused so much attention and looking at the flaws in the justice system. Um, but there's never a doubt that he's innocent. It's a question of will this legal system uh, allow him a new trial? Because I can promise you if he has a new trial in a venue that isn't completely biased, he will walk out the door. Mm -hmm. He will walk out the door. This evidence that was used to convict him will not stand up to scientific scrutiny. And these witnesses that were used against him, they'll never survive this time, you know? <laughs> they'll never survive it. No. Um, well, thank you very much for taking time out of your busy schedule to to join me today. And I wish you the very best of luck with the, yes, thank uh, you the, so much. the rest of this work. Thank you yes. very much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Right. Well, thank you, Kathleen, for taking uh, some time out of your very busy schedule to talk to me today. Um, it was an extremely interesting chat and shed light on the route forward uh, in terms of Stephen's appeal case. Um, 
If you have any questions, as I said at the top of the show, please feel free to get in contact with me. My details will be on the, the credits at the end. Um, I would also like to take this opportunity to show my gratitude to the people who have donated to the show via the Kofi link in terms of helping to keep this going and giving me support to to carry on with these shows. Um, this is all done in my free time. And it takes a great deal of time to to arrange the interviews, plan them and then carry them out. So I would like to thank Joe Doherty, Donna Jenkins, Lucy Green and Claire Malone, who have all donated over the course of the last week. On next week's show, we are joined by Professor Johnson, who is the leading professor and the leading light in the field of false confessions. So if you have a question for Professor Good Johnson, please feel free to get in contact with me and I will put that to him. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Many thanks.